thankful that you're with us in the valleys, on the mountaintops, and everywhere in between, that you walk with us, that your goodness follows us, your mercy follows us, that we are able to rely upon you for all things. Thank you for the uh, opportunity that we have had this morning to worship you because of who you are and because of your goodness. And I pray as we open up your written word that we would continue to worship you because of what you have revealed about yourself, about our relationship with you in this precious word of God today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible and open with me to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to focus in on one specific verse this morning, verse 3, though we will read several verses around Matthew chapter 5, as I want to share a message with you this morning that is part of a new series that we're beginning today, and the title of the sermon this morning is, is Prosperous Poverty. Now, we live in a world of hashtags. Now, if you don't know what a hashtag is, that's the pound sign on your phone. If you don't know what the pound sign is on your phone, Google it. If you don't know what Google is, ask your grandkids, all right? And uh, a hashtag is, is used on social media platforms. It's, uh, it's primarily used to, to index something or to kind of help you keep track of a particular topic. But that's how it was originally meant to be used. But now it's basically just a, a thing to do. And so what happens is that you get on your favorite preferred social media platform. You get on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram or whatever it is, and you type something something that for some reason you think the world wants to know about uh, your life or about your activity. It could be uh, where you're traveling. It could be a picture of your, your food, which I don't like people do that because that just makes me hungry. Uh, it, it could be a hashtag of, of uh, what's wrong with you that week or, or where you've traveled or where you've been. Uh, whatever you want the world to know and you can hashtag whatever it is with it. Well, a popular hashtag in recent years is hashtag hashtag blessed. Now, theoretically, someone might use that hashtag blessed to point out a blessing in their lives. And sure enough, if you, if you scour social media and you search for posts about hashtag blessed, there are some really great things that people are, are praising God for and they're giving blessings and, and worship to God for his blessings. But uh, in reality, some people use hashtag blessed for a, another, pers- another purpose. Some people have the ability, you know what a humble brag is? That's when you humbly brag about yourself or something. And some people have now mastered how to hashtag blessed as a way to be humble bragging to point out how awesome they are. Now, I would not tell my homiletics professor at New Orleans Seminary that I spent part of my week in sermon prep doing this, but I want to show you a couple of examples of hashtag blessed. For example, here's one that was on the Twitter sphere. This guy says, oh, I need my glasses. <laughs> this guy says, another day, hold on, it's, I'm 40-something years old. There we go. Another day and another attire, feeling good like I should. Hashtag gratitude, hashtag blessed. A little humble brag. 
Or maybe the next one here. Blessed to be in this position to be a national champion for the 400 meter and breaking my state record running a time of 46.02. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> or how about this one? One mission, one goal, one outcome. Hashtag blessed. Now I gave this one points because they also added hashtag highly favored. That's good right there. <laughs> hashtag blessed. Hashtag. And then I saw this, this, this last one. Hashtag blessed because my hashtag Destiny 2 meme about sure I know past peer review and spawned further memeing in reblogs and tags. I ain't got a clue what that means. <laughs> Not a clue. But a little bit of a humble brag about hashtag being blessed. My, my point, and, uh, and, and you'll get some of those maybe over the next several weeks. But my, my point in, in calling your attention to that is to, to stress that, that our culture has a perspective of what it means to be blessed. Scripture has a perspective of what it means to be blessed. And those two perspectives are oftentimes not the same. And very often, they are not similar at all. So we're going to spend a few weeks working through Matthew chapter 5, specifically verses 1 through 12, looking at a portion of Scripture that's called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are found at the very beginning of the most famous sermon that Jesus preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Each Beatitude begins with the word blessed or blessed. Blessed. Two pronunciations, they both mean the same thing, blessed and or blessed, and uh, they reveal the kind of life that is truly hashtag blessed. The Beatitudes are just that. They're Beatitudes. They're attitudes that followers of Jesus should seek to become, that we should seek to be. They are, are practices that we should embrace, and, and they're characteristics that should become our reality. They set forth the fundamental principles of God's kingdom. These are the guidelines that should govern Every follower of Jesus as we seek to follow Jesus. And the Beatitudes, as we'll see over the coming weeks, they demonstrate to us that the way to blessedness in the kingdom of God is far different from the route that the world takes. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the spiritual qualities that bring us into a place of blessedness in God's kingdom are incompatible with the values which our culture clings to. In fact, I'm going to show you how just by reading them. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hashtag blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive 
mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Did you notice in verse 12 that the ultimate point is that these truths, the Beatitudes, should result in our rejoicing and in our happiness. But doesn't that seem paradoxical? I mean, Jesus shows us a kingdom that doesn't really fit the kind of kingdom we would expect him to, to bring or that we would have anticipated. The words that Jesus used are not the words we would expect expect him to use. He says that people who were hashtag blessed should be tweeting about how they are poor in spirit. He says that the blessed people are the mourners. They're the meek. They're the persecuted. You are blessed, Jesus said, if you are reviled. How many of you say, I want that kind of happiness? I mean, how many of us are signing up for that. To most people, even to some church people, and by that I mean some of us who are sitting in this room today, what Jesus says in these 12 verses, let's be honest, it seems absurd because the world says, the world says, blessed is the go-getter. Blessed is the person who gets what he wants, when he wants it, where he wants it, and how he wants it. The world says that to be blessed is to gain. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the famous. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the popular. This message from Jesus is so drastically different from the world's message. And the main reason it is so drastically different from the world's message is that Jesus defines being hashtag blessed in a completely different way than our world. You see, according to our culture, you are blessed when good things happen to you or when good things happen around you. According to our culture, being blessed is dependent upon your circumstances. According to Jesus... You are blessed when the deepest longings of your heart are met and fulfilled in a relationship with him independent of your circumstances. You see, our culture views being blessed as being based on what happens on the outside of you, external. Jesus' view of being blessed is based upon what happens on the inside of you, based on what happens internally. And Jesus told us this. Jesus is saying in these Beatitudes, he is saying that you will never be truly, biblically blessed in this world. You have to go to another level. And the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, take you to that level. Jesus takes us away from the world and the things that are in it. 
And he's going to counter everything we see about being hashtag blessed on TV, billboards, or on social media. And he starts in verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are prosperously in poverty. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The fundamental characteristic of a citizen of God's kingdom is becoming poor in spirit. No one enters the kingdom of heaven without it. So it behooves us to ask a, a couple of questions. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I mean, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. So we need to know what does it mean to be poor in spirit. Now, the Bible uses a couple of different words in the New Testament for the word poor, but the word that is used here specifically in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, it is a Greek word that describes a beggar who is so desperately ashamed of his situation that he doesn't even want his identity to be known. It is a poverty that brings uh, some sense of, of shame to the person who has it. This idea of being poor in spirit has the idea of someone who is so poor they must beg for help because they have zero, zero big goose egg, nada. They have zero resources with which to live. This is not a person who is just down on their luck, but they able to go get a job and make it through from paycheck to paycheck. This poverty of spirit that's described in here describes someone who is dependent, totally dependent upon someone else for their survival. And this poverty, if you notice its location, it's not in the body, but it's in the spirit. The spirit refers to the inner person. Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who are poor financially, who are poor physically, who are poor materially. He's talking about being poor spiritually, to be poor in spirit, to have poverty of spirit means that we recognize our spiritual poverty before God. This is something that I'm afraid Many of us may not have to the degree to which we need to have it. After all, we are a can-do people. We are Americans, not Americans, right? I mean, we we are people to, to use the language of the former governor, uh, uh, Governor Barber, Haley Barber, Mississippi. When a uh, uh, Katrina came through, he said, "It's time to hitch up our britches and get it done." That we are people who, who want to be able to, to solve our problems. We're people who want to be able to find within ourselves the ability to make like life work. But we have to understand that in reality, we are spiritually bankrupt before God. We have no means. We have no resources to do anything about our own situation before God, which means we must separate ourselves from the idea of independence and we must fully lean upon and depend upon God for everything. See, to be poor in spirit means that we're weak and that we're nothing 
and that we cannot contribute one single thing to God. <clears throat> the world tells us, no, assert yourself, be proud of yourself, grab your place in the world. But God says that when you admit your weakness and your nothingness, that that's not the end. Rather, that is just the beginning. You see, Jesus is saying, before you do anything else, before you say anything else, you must first say, I can't. No, we can't. Hey, yes, I can is fine for a political slogan, but it's not for a follower of Jesus. No, I can't. I can't do anything without the help of God. Do you realize that the only reason that you're breathing today is because God at this moment is filling your lungs with air? Did you know that the only reason that you will leave this place today is because God will cause the muscles in your body to work in such a way to take you from here outside the door in two hours? <laughs> do you realize that you can do nothing without God? Go to Milton City Cemetery and walk by every grave and command those graves, those people's graves, to come back to life. You don't have the power. Try to, try to fix your marriage by the, the, the best help, self-help gurus or Oprah's book club or, or Dr. Phil. Try to have that really fix what's wrong. It won't happen. The only hope we have is in Jesus. And we have to realize <clears throat> that without Jesus, we don't have a shot. We are poor in spirit. I do not add one thing to God. It is he who, who adds everything to me. Right. You see, Jesus told us a parable that illustrates this poverty in spirit. And I, I want to quickly read it to you, and then I promise we'll, we'll, we'll quickly move through the rest of our time together this morning. But he tells a parable over in Luke chapter 18 that illustrates the difference in someone who is poor in spirit and someone who is proud in spirit. And in Luke chapter 18, when Jesus tells this parable, he says in verse 9 that he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That is not poverty of spirit. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Here's this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, will not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's poverty of spirit. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, 
but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Blessed are the spiritual paupers, the spiritual empty, the spiritual bankrupt who cringe in a corner and cry out to God for mercy. They are the blessed ones. They are the happy ones. Why? Because in their spiritual poverty, they tap into the real resource for blessing and happiness. They are the only ones who know God. Theirs is the kingdom, then and there, here and now. So, what difference does it make in our lives? Why should we be concerned about being poor in spirit? Glad you asked. Let me tell you real quick why we should be concerned as what this being poor in spirit demands. First, understand this, our salvation demands that we be poor in spirit. <clears throat> poor, or bless those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Becoming poor in spirit is the very first thing that must happen in the life of anyone who will ever enter God's kingdom. No one has ever entered the kingdom of God on the basis of pride. For you see, you cannot be filled with Jesus until you are emptied of self. Did you hear me? If you want a relationship with Jesus, you cannot be filled with Jesus until you are empty of yourself. Until we desperately know how condemned we are. Until we know how far estranged we are from God in our sin. Until we realize that we cannot appreciate how glorious God is and how gracious his offer is for our salvation. Until we see our spiritual poverty, we cannot receive his spiritual riches. Remember the definition of poor? The poor in spirit, zero resources within self, totally dependent upon someone else to save us. You see, God gives grace to the humble. That's why being poor in spirit has to be at the very beginning. The only way to come to God is to confess unrighteousness and our inability to meet God's standards. You must come to God with a sense of helplessness and desperation, ready to receive the most divine blessing of all, salvation. Well, let me put it to you this way. <coughs> If you came to God for salvation with the intention of helping him, you haven't come to God on his terms. Our salvation demands that we be poor in spirit. You say, preacher, I'm saved, so I'm good to go. Well, that's why number two is for you. Our sanctification demands that we be poor in spirit. You see, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes as a a whole They remind us that we cannot fulfill the requirements of God in our own strength. If our salvation is totally dependent upon God, so is our sanctification. You and I, we need God's help as much after our salvation as we do before it. There's a false idea out there, and the false idea is that you need all the grace of Jesus to get saved, but then after that, you're on your own. After that, you got to do all the work. 
And that's simply not true. We need God as much after our salvation for our sanctification than we did before him. And let me, let me give you an illustration of that. Go all, all the way back to the Old Testament. On top of Mount Sinai, remember what happened on Mount Are you with me? You listen to this talk for just a second because I'm about to preach longer if you don't. You with me? This is yes, this is no. Preacher, I'm listening. Are, are you listening? Thank you. All right, so 15 of you listen to me as we go on the rest of the time. On the top of Mount Sinai, God gave the law to Moses. While God was giving the law on top of Mount Sinai to Moses, the people of God were breaking it down below at the same time. And so God comes to them and God shares with them why they're wrong and why they shouldn't do that. And he uses Moses to to express his anger and, and he gives the people a choice. He says, repent. And some repent, some offer their sacrifice, but some others don't. And so what they end up doing in the Old Testament is they realize we can't keep the law of God. So let's take our spiritual knives out and let's whittle this law of God down to man-made traditions. Because traditions made by men will always be easier to keep than the standard of God. And so they make these man-made traditions. So much so that by the time Jesus gets on the scene, he looks at a bunch of people who look like they have it together on the outside. They'd come to church just like you. They'd sit on a pew just like you're sitting. They may even sing in the choir. They'd serve on a committee because I'm sure the Old Testament had 14,000 committees like the church does today. They would do all these things externally, but Jesus would say about them, they honor me with their lips, but their heart's far from me. Because we need the help of Jesus, not just for our salvation. We have to be poor in spirit for our sanctification. We have to place ourselves before God and say, God, I cannot become like Jesus unless you help me become like Jesus. So God, I'm not going to compare myself to anybody else. I'm going to use you as my standard. God, will you make me more like Jesus? This is the way. The sermon is the way we're to live, but we cannot live that way. But when we are poor in spirit, we will totally totally depend upon God in order to be who he has called us to be. And may I say, maybe you're here today and maybe you are a modern day Pharisee. May I say to you in the words of the great theologian, I think it's Bob Newhart, stop it. <laughs> stop. Because you can't be who God's called you to be unless you rely upon the God who's called you. We have to be poor in spirit for our salvation and for our sanctification, but also for our service. Our service demands that we be poor in spirit. The only way we will be able to serve God is when we become poor in spirit. Oh, Jacob had to learn this. Jacob had to become poor in spirit before God could use him. He fought God all night, and finally God dislocated his hip. God put Jacob flat on his back, and then it was there that God blessed him. 
But Isaiah, he could not be used of God because you remember when Isaiah chapter 6 starts, Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high lifted up and a train filled his temple. And, and, and Isaiah was so distraught. Isaiah was so, was so aggravated that, that the king was dead. He was so distraught he couldn't see Jesus. And so God had to give him a glimpse of his glory. And God had to bring him to a point to where he understood being poor in spirit. Peter was aggressive. Peter was self-assertive. Peter was very confident in himself. If Peter had had three feet, he'd have all three sandals in his feet, uh, in, his, in his mouth most of the time. And Peter was so assertive and so uh, self-confident. Yet there came a time when he was confronted with his spiritual poverty. And it was then that God recommissioned him and used him mightily. Paul was of no value in the service of God until he came to the realization that he was poor in spirit. The chief of sinners who admitted that no good thing dwelt in his flesh. Only then when he embraced his spiritual poverty and weakness did he find God's strength. We need to be poor in spirit. Our salvation, our sanctification, our service. That's fine, Pastor, but tell me, how do I get there? How do I become poor in spirit? Again, real quick, three things. One, to become poor in spirit, sacrifice yourself to God. You have to sacrifice yourself to God. <clears throat> Starve your flesh. Become a living sacrifice. What did Paul tell us in Romans chapter 12? That, that we have to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. He said in Galatians 2.20 that he was crucified with Christ. It wasn't him who lived, but Christ who lived in him. We must make a daily decision to believe that we are spiritually bankrupt and totally dependent upon God. We must choose to have zero confidence in yourself, but have every confidence in God. That equation will always lead you to the sacrifice of self. So we sacrifice self to God. Second, to become poor in spirit, surrender yourself to God. If you want to embrace being poor in spirit, surrender yourself to God. Throw up the white flag to God. Some of you have been fighting God. Some of you have been warring with God. Some of you, you know what God wants to do. You know how God wants to humble you. You know what God wants to teach you, but you keep fighting. Throw up the white flag. Guess what? You fight God, you ain't going to win, right? So just throw up the white flag and surrender. By surrender, I mean stop trying to manufacture your own righteousness and surrender to the one who is perfectly righteous. And then third, to become poor in spirit, submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to God. Submission to God, it's different than our submission to each other. Submission to God means that we take our direction from him. You see, God is the king of this kingdom, and we are his subjects. And here's a great paradox, which the Beatitudes are full of paradoxes. Here is the great paradox. In our sacrifice, in our surrender, in our submission to this king, we experience more freedom than if we keep control to ourselves. Did you know that? You ever tried to live your way versus God's way? Following God, you may feel like it's going to restrict you. What you find out is when you follow God, it frees you. 
to do what he has called you to do. The kingdom of heaven, which belongs to those who are poor in spirit, is the rule of Christ. It has a future aspect, yes, but it also has a right now aspect. Right now, we are subjects of Jesus Christ. We are now overcomers. God's kingdom is grace and glory. Right now, we have grace. We will receive glory later. We possess that kingdom. It is ours, the rule and reign of Christ in our lives. So as we sacrifice, as we surrender, as we submit ourselves to God as people who are poor in spirit, we find that our king takes care of us. He gives us what we need. He fulfills every longing of our heart. He helps us live a truly blessed life. There is indeed prosperity in our spiritual poverty. Those who are poor in spirit are actually the richest people on the face of the earth. I want to ask you this morning that you have a relationship with Jesus. Has there been a time when you are poor in spirit that you came to Jesus on his terms and have asked him to be your Lord and Savior? Are you living your life following Jesus, being poor in spirit, relying upon him to help you in your sanctification, your service? That old hymn, Rock of Ages, has a line in it that says, Nothing in my hand I bring. Poor in spirit, nothing. Simply to thy cross I cling. If you'll cling to the cross of Jesus today, you will find that those who are poor in spirit are rich in Jesus. Let's bow together. As we bow together and pray, after I pray, we're going to stand and sing. Whatever God's placed upon your heart today, we simply want you to respond. We'll always ask you nothing more, nothing less than putting your yes on the table to whatever God's calling you to do. Father God, I thank you that we can look to Jesus and find in Jesus someone who can make us, when we are poor in spirit, he can actually cause us to be greatly blessed and prosperous in Jesus. I pray today if there's one in this room who has yet to place their faith in Jesus, that today they would realize their need for that. And God, I pray for those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus already, that we would realize that the truly blessed life is admitting to you each and every day that we desperately need you for everything and that we desperately depend upon you to help us, to guide us, to love us, and to meet our needs. Have your will and your way in our hearts and our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.